Hello, guys. Uh, today we have a very interesting guest. It's uh, one of the co-founders of Ichigo Ichi, David Ventura. And uh, he's going to talk about his career in games, uh, which spans uh, a number of years and a lot of continents. So he worked on uh, uh, games in Japan. Uh, he studied in the United States. And uh, now he builds music-based uh, titles in Sweden. So here's what he has to say. Greetings, and welcome to the 80-Level Roundtable podcast. In each episode, host Kirill Tokarev invites video game industry leaders to talk about the world of game development. No topic is off-limits as long as it relates to video game development. New episodes are in the works, so remember to follow us or subscribe and share with someone you know will also enjoy the podcast. David, before we kind of go into like the nitty gritty and the question and so on, can you do like a little intro? Tell us a little bit about yourself, like what do you do, uh, where do you come from, about your company. My name is David Ventura. I'm the creative director of Ichigo Ichie, which is a Swedish indie game studio. And what I do is I work on running the studio and I direct our games. Um, Hexagroove and Backbeat are the two titles that we're, we've worked on previously. So we have a lot of questions, but bef before um, I want to kind of stop and talk a little bit about the like the Japanese part um, of your career. So how did you get to work in Japan? How did this journey start? So when I was in graduate school, uh, I was studying entertainment technology, which is like theme parks and video games and uh, movies and things like that. And we have a summer internship that... Uh, everybody does. Most people went to California to work for EA or Disney or something like that, but I wanted to try something different. Uh, so I actually did a research internship in Kyoto at a research lab. And I worked on a project where we were designing um, using robots to teach children about music. Uh, oh, that, wow. was the first, that was the first time I'd been outside of uh, uh, North America. And it was an eye opener for me. I loved it a lot. So when I finished my graduate school, I went and worked really hard to get uh, hired. And I was fortunate to get a job right out of college for an indie studio called Innis in Tokyo. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how does this market work? Because I think the Japanese games are kind of so penetrated so well, like the American culture and the world culture, and they're everywhere. But we know only about those big companies. We know about like Capcom, we know about Nintendo, Sony. But there's this whole market out there, like different studios. And like there, are, I heard like there are even like different styles of approaching game development in different regions of, of the country. Can you tell us a little bit about how does it work inside? Like how big is it? What are those indie studios in Japan? Like are they similar to like American companies or how do they work? Yeah. Uh I have most experience with the company I worked at, Ennis, uh, which was a very small studio. When we started out, or when I joined the company, there were only five people, and mm -hmm. I was the second programmer. And when I left the company nine years later, we were up at 70. So I saw the growth happen from a small, like, just, you know, uh, we had an office on top of a beauty parlor um, uh, when we started out. And then we ended up in the center of the city and in a big office building. I think that 
small indie studios there exist. And like a lot of indie studios in the West, you get by doing like contracting and weird gigs, I guess, to get started. Uh, when I started the company, I designed, uh, I worked on like a flight simulator for all Nippon Airlines. So we were making something to help pilots train themselves for flying airplanes. Uh, we did ports of uh, famous IPs to mobile phones um, before smartphones, feature phones. So like putting like Pingu on like a NTT Docomo phone or uh, working on a port of Castlevania for, for feature phones and things like that. And these little projects here and there. Our company was made um, of musicians, uh, people that had studied music in college. So we did a lot of contracting for music software, building sample libraries and things like that. Um, and that the, the funny thing is that's very similar to the kind of work that I do um, at Ichigo EGA and how we we are operating right now until you know until you have that big hit and what it takes to like fund your own titles. So you got to split your attention between selling yourself as a software developer as much mm-hmm. as uh, someone who makes uh, products and games. So um, that was really interesting uh, to me to, to see that start and to see it grow. And we had our heyday where all we did was make games and we did them uh-huh. for ourselves and we did them also for, for other publishers. But uh, the way that the Japanese do game development, I think does differ a little bit. Um, what, are, like, the, what are like the main differences like from United States and uh, Europe? I think that in Japan, you have a lot of top-down um, management mm-hmm. and top-down production. So usually for most of the successful ones or all the studios, you have like one guy at the top um, or that's that's very driven and very passionate and very uh, confident in their abilities. And they have this thing and it, and it goes down and it's a pyramid and there's middle management all the way. And there's a, a system of checks all the way down. I'd say there's more infrastructure probably. It's nowhere near as flat as the companies that I've seen and worked with in the West. Um, and everything is very methodical. Like all the specifications for the games are written in Excel. And like, even though it's like a spreadsheet, you write mm-hmm. tons of text, like it's a book written in Excel oh, okay. like, with graphs next to it. It's very analytical. Um, the planning is very uh, meticulous. And I think you, it's it's not... When I worked at it, it wasn't quite as agile, I guess, as we try to do now with game development, where with that, it was very waterfall. And you just, if it didn't work, you threw it all away and you started all over again. You did that over mm-hmm. and over and over again um, until, it, until it clicks. How do those studios, um, how do they find people? So you mentioned that you had this opportunity to go from United States, work there, even when you were still in school. But overall, like, where do they find the people to work with? Do they just go to colleges or is it like internal networks and they're just asking for references? Are there job boards? Like, how does one get into this side of the game development? Yeah, I think it depends where you're coming from. I know that I I did recruiting in Japan for about six years and we got our applicants from two large pools. One was the, the, the trade schools. So there's schools that are special in um, 3D animation or game development or things like that. Um, and the second is intermediate hires for people that are trying to change jobs. So you have like the equivalent of like a monster.com or a, um, a Indeed and things like that, where people are posting and looking for jobs and they're getting hired over. But one thing that's, that's different, I think, is how you form it is. Every job application I got was in the exact same template. We're like name here. You know, age, what school did you go to? There's a photo of the person at the right hand corner. And like, it's, it's, it's very cookie cutter. There's no individualism um, in the documents that you get uh, from there. 
Another thing is that they expect a lot that the company is going to train employees. So the mm-hmm. amount of skills that the students know coming out of school is not quite as advanced, I think, as in the West. So we expect that they're not going to know almost anything at all, even though they've gone to a specialty school for game development or animation. And then it's kind of like an apprenticeship where like the the senior animator or programmer, whoever is going to take this person under their wing and they're going to train them. Um, and this person's going to learn on the job and it'll probably take years before they can actually contribute to a level where they're considered a standard employee that, that, that is, you know, pulling their own uh, weight inside of the company. And that's something that extends not just in game development and IT, it's, it's in the way that Japanese uh, develop people that are younger mm. for all kinds of different professions. Does this also mean that they also stay with the company longer? Uh, do they jump from one place to another like they do in US and Europe? Um, it used to be that people stay with the company for a much longer time. I think in the last generation, that's starting to change. Um, people are starting to feel like they're disenchanted uh, with the idea of like working for life and things like that. A lot of the people uh-huh. that we hired intermediately or the people that I worked with that were my peers had been there for like 15, 20 years. Um, but I know the people that we were recruiting right towards the end of when I lived in, in Japan. Uh, they would quit within one or two years and they would go to their company or maybe they would quit games altogether and then go to work in something completely different like hotel management or, or beauty or something. Do, do you feel like there is still this passion for a video game industry in, in Japan where people really want to kind of, you know, they play Dragon Quest their whole childhood and now they want to contribute and continue working there? I think so. Um, but I'd, I don't hear, I didn't hear that story, to be honest, as much as I do in Sweden now. In Sweden, I do a lot of recruiting from from trade schools and from places like that. And usually people do say, yeah, I played with my parents. I played ever since I was very young. I've always wanted to make games or it's been in the back of my mind. But in Japan, it was it was becoming not entirely socially acceptable to be into those kind of things. I mean, okay. mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you didn't hear that kind of narrative quite as often. Um But of course, there still are people that are very passionate about making games in Japan. So how did this shift happen with you when you decided to move from Japan to Europe? When did it happen and why did you decide to make this move? So when I had been working for about nine years, um, I had... I really loved the company. I loved the people that I worked with, but the products that we were making started to make less sense to me. Um, and I kind of felt like I needed a change in my life. I was a little burnt out, to be honest. I was burnt out in game development uh, in total. So at that time, uh, my wife and I talked to, we thought we'd like to see what it's like to live in Europe. Neither of us had ever lived here before. So we decided to get a clean a clean break, um, especially for me in terms of my career. So I came to Sweden to um, work with music software directly as opposed to games. And I took a little pause uh, for about four years or so to recharge before I got uh, pulled back in and just couldn't stay away from making games. So why Sweden? Why did you like it? Because I'm Sweden is like one of my favorite countries in Europe. I like the, the, the Northern, you know, places, uh, more than like the, the central Europe, so to speak. Uh, why did you decide this, um, place and, um, tell us about like what, I don't want to say culture shock, like, but what were the things that seemed different, especially with your, you know, coming from US and then Asia and then suddenly Sweden, 
like maybe Fika or something else were kind of the things that you were really surprised with? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to work in music software and I wanted to do, I mean, for me, I'm a very passionate person. I want to believe in the products that I'm making. And Sweden and Germany both have very good music software industries. I think there's lots of a lot of the big names that make uh, software in Sweden and Germany. I went to both of those countries. I interviewed for jobs in both of them, but in the end, um, there was a company here in Stockholm called Propellerhead that was making a product that resonated with me very strongly, and I felt uh, I wanted to be a part of that. So for me, it was purely um, about uh, the job and the product that I was going to be working on. Uh, when I got here, yes, it's very different from Japan in some ways and very similar in others. Um, the Swedish people have a sense of, I guess, distance and between people they don't know and they don't want to cause trouble or, or, or uh, inconvenience their neighbors like in their around where they live. Or, you know, if you're at a bus stop, you kind of spread out and things like that. So in that sense, it's very Japanese. Um, but other things are that... Uh, what I saw working at my company was that people took work in a completely different kind of uh, way. When I was in Japan, we started at you know, nine o'clock, nine 30 in the morning. And for the first, I guess, half of my career there, I usually went home around 10 30 at night. Uh, later when I was in Japan, I started dialing it back and started going home. I think like at seven 30 or eight, but in Sweden, people get in at nine 30, but they're gone by like four o'clock or four 30 or something like that. So there's, there's flex time. Everybody who has children is in very early and then they're gone before like, I guess, daycare pickup uh, starts or whatever. But even the people that didn't have kids, they didn't work very late and they didn't socialize so much with other people in the company. So it felt to me like that they weren't as engaged maybe or with the work or they're not with the company, like the company was a job and it was just something you did. But like in Japan, even if we left late, we would go out drinking afterwards and we would do that several times a week. And it was it was not so much about just drinking because we wanted to to have beer, but it was, you want to commiserate. And like the people in my office were my friends and we wanted to talk about how things went well, or we wanted to, you know, to bitch about, you know, bosses or how something was going. And that bond was a very big part. So the, the, the work life was part of my personal life and it was a huge part of my identity. So coming to Sweden and then being in a company where everybody else was just like pulling a, a switch at say four thirty five o'clock. I was like, what am I going to do with myself for the rest of the day? <laughs> like I felt kind of, kind of like lost. Um, How did you fix that? Like the more time with family or did you finally start to get some connections with the Swedish guys or is it like the same right now? I think it's, uh, it's a balance for me right now personally. So I spent more time with family, I guess, after being here about two or three years, then I had children. Um, and then we started to have you know more things to do like like obligations and then activities and being with the, yeah, the kids and whatnot yeah. but also um i i mean i really like i have a couple people that i'm very very close with and i try to spend as much time with them as possible like my co-founder mm -hmm. magnus is one of them um so we still have uh after works where we we have beers and hang out and talk and things like that and that's very important to me i don't think i'll ever give that up no matter what country i'm living in David, so you mentioned that you're doing a lot of hiring in uh, Sweden. And uh, we know that there are a lot of great schools in uh, in Europe in general. There's like a wonderful school in Belgium. There's France, uh, Germany. Like there are great institutions that create, um, that build up like very great uh, specialists. And unlike, I guess, 
guys from Japan, when they go out of this school, they're usually well prepared. Can you tell us a little bit, bit, how do you work with those schools? Where do you look for people? How do you find them? Because a lot of our audience are actually guys who are either looking for work or they're just kind of like on this threshold. We're about to graduate and uh, they really want to pop up and see and maybe travel the world. And how do you find people then? Right. So we have two, I guess, main sources of where we find uh, new talent in our company. One is that we work with schools in the Stockholm area. So some of those are trade schools that are just specialized in game development and some of them universities that have game development courses or degrees. Um, but all of these programs have an internship usually where uh, the students can work with us for somewhere between three and uh, seven months doing something like programming or 3D art and learning how to contribute. So um, I'm in contact with the, the headmasters and the directors mm. in these schools, and I meet with them several times a year because that's when the, the period is for finding uh, the internships in their, their program. The other is that we have um, some outliers. So there's like uh, a company that's called the Swedish American Chamber of Commerce. And what they do is kind of like okay. help uh, American students that are looking for jobs in Sweden. And then we can post our job listings with them and internships and we can find them that way too. Uh, so it's a lot of young people. Um, we don't do a lot of hiring of veterans uh, just yet. Uh, but it's it's mostly through schools right now. Is there is there interest? Like, do you feel like because uh, that's the the question that we keep having? Because uh, at least like in my circles, people are like one hundred percent sure that games right now maybe are even more important for maybe people of our age when we were growing up, right? Uh, that they are more important than let's say Netflix or stuff like that. Um, do you still see this passion like with people you're recruiting who are really interested in building games or is it just like a work for them? Like a, it's a, it's a work thing and uh, they can choose games or work in a bank or, or do something else. I think it seems to be half and half to me. Even some of the people that come from specialty schools, they're mm -hmm. there and they're doing it because they like games, but it's not, they're not like uh, ravenous about it and they have other options and they've, I've seen some of them go on to other industries uh, as well. Some of people are very, very dedicated and passionate. But one thing I've noticed is the people that sometimes are the most passionate, it's very hard to find a balance of people that are very passionate, but also can work very well with other people and like be able to collaborate um, because games is a creative process that we do in teams. So it's very important that we, listen to each other and talk and are very good about uh, communicating our, our issues and our problems before they, they get out of hand. So I think that's an interesting uh, compliment and you, and, and you, you're looking for students that can kind of check both of those boxes. So it is an interesting question, right? Because your games are a little bit different and they are kind of a lot, there is a lot of connection with music and sound and kind of rhythm. Um, how did you come up with this new approach, right? I mean, we, we all know that there were games kind of concentrated on music and you think about like Guitar Hero and all the other series. They're huge, right? But what, how is your approach different? Like where do you see kind of this niche for um, music-based games? Mm -hmm. For us, uh, what we're trying to build is games where 
music is not something where you're, I guess, emulating a famous person or, or emulating a famous song. We want to use music as a way for the game player to be creative and to express themselves. Uh, and we're familiar that this is a very challenging thing to pull off. So we hide music inside of other kinds of game designs. So um, mm -hmm. our specialty is that we take other genres like puzzle or strategy genres, and we define rules in the space in terms of what you can modify and how you can modify uh, the environment. And all those rules are underpinned by what makes great music. And as a byproduct, music is produced by the actions that you do um, in our game. So that's something that we we excel at and we want to to uh, pitch to people that if you're looking for new kinds of gameplay interactions and new kinds of design, uh, spins on existing genres and ones that allow you to be creative, that's what we want to build. And I think that's there's a potential for future there, not just music. You can think about lots of things like analogs for other concepts that we're familiar with but have not yet been worked into the rules of what it is to succeed in a video game. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Oh dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you have, you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The <laughs> way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out the Gaming Blender on all your favorite podcast platforms now. Do you feel like it's important in um, game design, especially, to kind of break uh, the established rules that you have there? Because we we've seen like, uh, especially on the indie scene, a lot of studios kind of trying to do that when they're they're taking one concept and then they're completely changing it up, mixing it up, and then there is a different game out there. Like, how do you approach it? Do you you know, do you do prototypes at first or do you just play a bunch of games and then you have an idea? Like, what's the creative process behind this rule changes? What we do is we usually start with an experience that we want to create, something that's very esoteric and uh, emotional-based and something we want to achieve. And then we think about how we can manifest that. That's the way I approach it. Like, I want to build the feeling of what it's like to be in a club and to hear the thumping of the bass and the tinkling of the air and the smell of the people around you while we're all dancing and having a fantastic time. And then um, we try to work that into a gameplay uh, concept. And the concept has to feel fun and pleasant and pleasing from just pushing a button or doing some kind of thing. So mm -hmm. we want to add that simple pleasure into the basic foundation. We do do lots of prototypes, like you said. So the game that we're working on now, Backbeat, um, we had four or five ideas all at once that were kind of in competition that we built prototypes with them just in a web browser using like emoji uh, because the the presentation is not has nothing to do with if it feels fun or not uh, to us. So we mock this up really fast in Chrome. We hook up a gamepad to it. We move the emoji around and see if the these rules of this environment are inspiring or, or fun to mess around with. And in this case, the one that became Backbeat uh, won out over some other web browser emoji games. <laughs> and uh, then we refined the concept until it's in the 3D world with a story and characters. So uh, I, I know Backbeat is not 
is not released yet, but there is a demo on Steam so people can try it out. Yes, there is a demo on Steam that uh, you can you can try right away. Cool. Okay, I will leave a link in the in the description. Um, tell us a little bit about um, kind of the tools that you're using. Are you relying mostly on just coding and just doing it like with HTML5, or do you work more with Unity or some other tools? Like, what are like the important tools that are currently available that are part of your like dev development toolkit? Yeah, so we work with a number of things. We try to be uh, as reusable as possible for the for the stuff that is special to us, our specialty. So we build our middleware and our game logic and our music software, uh, our audio engine all in Rust, which is a, a programming language that's becoming more popular with game development recently. And then we can cross compile that to C++ and have it run on a web browser or a switch or a, a PC or a Mac or a PlayStation or whatever it needs to be. Um, that's our foundation. And uh, we start out with TypeScript and we were prototyping. So that's what I was talking, telling you about mm -hmm. those, those um, games and web browser with emoji. Now we use Unity when we're working towards the, the, the real game uh, after we've nailed down the concept and then we're building the, how it operates with all of the bells and whistles and things like that. We use Unity and C-sharp for the higher level logic on top of that custom plugin, which is made with Rust. And from a graphics perspective, we use uh, Maya and Photoshop um, mm -hmm. are the two tools mm -hmm. that we have. Do, do you feel like these tools, um, did they become more kind of accessible and affordable over the last, let's say, 10 years, if you compare them when you were just uh, beginning and you're studying? Or do you feel like there is still a lot of barriers to kind of entry i think it has gotten more accessible like if you look at like maya used to cost thousands of dollars for a license yeah. um oh, we're on the maya indie i think it's called where you you buy a year subscription and you pay by month but you know it comes out to be i think like two or three hundred dollars a month or something like that or excuse me a year um so that's a cost that we that we can take um that our that our artists can use for all of our projects photoshop too if you're just doing photoshop you can get I think it's only like $10 a month for just Photoshop on the creative cloud. And that's like a hundred dollars a year or $120 a year. And they keep updating it. So that, that works um, with game engines too. If you're an indie and your, your earnings are underneath a certain threshold, you don't mm -hmm. have to pay royalties to, to, or, or have a license that costs money to unity or um, unreal. So uh, I have a little bit of a question on the, on the business side. So, mm. We ran a survey not that long ago, uh, and we presented it at GDC. And we, one of the questions we asked is basically two questions that were, um, how much money do you need to build a game? And the other one was, how much money are you willing to give away to a publisher? And uh, the results were quite interesting. So the results were um, basically like 50% of people said, and there was like 800 people surveyed. So it was like a large number. So 50% of them said that they don't need any money to start uh, building the project. And then uh, the second biggest answer was that they need $100,000. So when you, when we looked at that, when we figured then, well, a lot of people don't really know, you know, the, you know, the budgeting and all the other stuff, they don't know how much money actually is required to build anything not even like a full project. And uh, when we asked about kind of publishers and then it was like a trick question because we asked like, 
even if it's like a consultation, even if it's like just some help, like how much money are you willing to give? And people were willing to give up to like 50%. They, they were saying like 25, 30, and then 50. And like at 50, I was shocked literally because I didn't, I don't know how the mess adds up at this level. So my question for you is like, um, how difficult, I guess, from a business standpoint, is it to run uh, a video game company, especially an indie company right now in Europe? Like, um, are there problems with funding? Because um, right now I see a lot of kind of companies who are, you know, VCs who are entering a uh, game market and they're basically throwing money at you. Um, do, do, do you work with these kind of like new money uh, machines or do you want uh, to work with publishers or are do you self-publish? Like, how does it work on your end? Up until now, we have always done self-publishing um, and we don't have any real difficulty with anything technical that's involved with game development. So like porting or hardware and stuff or art, we can handle all of that. We don't have a lot of experience in marketing and we're not very, we don't have a big reach. So if I had to say that we needed some kind of outside assistance, it would be in marketing and getting access to be, get above the noise floor, you know, in terms of visibility. So I would... I would prefer to work with a publisher, I guess, if the terms are right. Um, our company is entirely privately owned and we have not taken any kind of VC money or loans. So we just funded it with our own uh, personal savings and then contracting money afterwards. Um, and that does slow down the development of the game, obviously, because if you're mm -hmm. working 40, 60% doing contracting for someone else, then that's only 20% of the time your game is actually taking a step forward. Do you feel like it's still important to kind of build the product because this is one of the things that I always had like there are a lot of wonderful companies out there but they're basically working as outsourcers like contractors they're they're building products or parts of products for someone else but they never release anything do you still do you feel like it's still important to have kind of something off your own and put it on the market and then see how it goes I think definitely I mean that's why I got into it I mean I, I founded my own company because i believe that I had a vision of something I wanted to create and I wanted to, to make something unique. Um, if, if I, if we did contracting all the time, then I'd be like, well, why don't we just work at another company and let someone else yeah. handle the risk of, of making sure our, our paychecks are paid every month because otherwise my job becomes chasing after contracts 24 seven. And that's not what I want to do um, with my life. I wanted, I want to, I want to make games. So for me, it's a means to an end. Um, but it's, it is exciting working with, with the partners that we have. David, kind of like the the last question, we ask this a lot to all of our guests. Um, how do you feel video game development is going to change in like the next five or 10 years? Do you feel like there's going to be like more, you know, procedural generation there or, you know, AI based systems that kind of build everything for you? Uh, or is it, or is it still going to be like, as it is today? I think that in terms of the, the high-end games, the AAA stuff, you'll find more procedural or more algorithmic type tools to help assist people. Mm. Um, but I don't think that you're gonna, you're not gonna find uh, that 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 will supplant a workforce of professionals anytime soon in the next five or ten years. Um, I think for an indie developer, hopefully, you know we we continue to find more channels to broadcast ourselves and to gain visibility and to build communities. 
you know, things like Discord uh, showing up and, and other social platforms. If you can get involved with things like TikTok and, and, and pull people into the funnel. I think that we need to be aware of the, the constant commoditization of games, unfortunately. And we need to think of a ways as, as indie developers to how to, how to battle that. Um, cause as, as, as it becomes easier and easier to make games and easier, and there's more and more indie developers out there adding more and more stuff to steam and whatnot, you know, you have like a Spotify type thing where if you have everything you can eat for like one price, when you see more game passes and, I know PS pluses and things like that, it'll be harder to sell a single copy of a game for 20, 25, $30 and things like that. So that narrative and that value proposition to find, to reach consumers that still want to pay for an individual license of one game um, is very important. And that's something we have to stay on top of to be able to to survive, I think, and to keep selling, making the games that we want to make. Do you feel like there is still going to be a market for that? Because if you look at the, like, DVD sales, for example, they, they're basically gone, right? Um, do you feel like people are still going to be buying like individuals like Dark Souls for 70 bucks and, you know, that kind of stuff? Or is it just going to be like the, the Spotify Netflix model? I want to believe that it's going to become kind of uh, boutique-ish um, mm -hmm. and there will, be, there will be competition there. But hopefully those of us that, you know, we have the pedigree and we have the unique content that we can provide a really high quality, unique experience. We can survive. If you look, was it vinyl sales, like outsold CDs yeah. or like vinyl sales are now like growing very big. Um, this, this, this kind of physical media and having something and buying it. I don't think humans will ever stop feeling that basic desire to have those things. And they appreciate the work that goes into something that you can put on your shelf. You might find that like physical games, like have a resurgence and the, if the distribution models can improve such that um, they can be produced more cheaply and consumers don't have to go to the big box stores and the, the developers can get more money on each cartridge that they produce or something like that, then I think we can survive. Um, we just need to keep developing uh, those channels of industry and, and things like Bandcamp or, you know, or, or, or um, physical record stores find ways to help support those indies. All right, David, I think this is kind of like an optimistic note to end uh, the, the podcast tonight. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you're busy, so I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll leave the link to the description for Backbeat and your studio. So everybody wants to maybe communicate with you or work with you, they can, you know, reach out and uh, figure out what's going on. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's great being here. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 Level Roundtable podcast. Check out upcoming episodes on the 80 Level website at 80.lv. Join our career site at 80.lv RFP. And share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.